Welcome to the pod, everyone. A shout out to SGS. Hey, Rusty, why are we uh, partnering with SGS? Uh, uh, some, some, some good people there. Pretty excited about their sports coaching courses and sports courses. Keen to make them industry ready so when people leave, they're able to go and transfer it to any kind of industries, coaching, teaching, being an analyst, business, whatever it might be. So I think, uh, yeah, I think it's pretty exciting times, really. So what's so special about their degree courses that others wouldn't be doing? I think it'll be lots of uh, real good partnerships, uh, opportunities for people to, to get into different contexts and learn and practice. It'll be feel very applied. People will be stretched and supported and will leave you know, ready to just go and thrive in the uh, big old world out there. SGS College is the home of Bristol's higher education sports programmes. The programmes are designed to develop unique, innovative and creative sports practitioners ready for industry. Do you want to be a coach or teacher of the future? Start your journey here at SGS College and become more than just a graduate. Visit sgscol.ac.uk to apply now. Cool. Live on the pod after a long wait, uh, Jack uh, Green, how the hell are you? I'm very well, thank you. Yeah, it has been a long wait. We've talked about this for a while, so good to be here. Yeah, I remember lots of phone calls whenever I'm in Kent, because you are like Lord Mayor of Kent, <laughs> um, like messaging you going, of course, I need to ring Jack and we need to sort this out. So, mate, I'm uh, I'm super pleased that you're on. Mate, I'm going to start with, actually, I'm, I know we've just chatted about a couple of stories, but actually, why is it you coach at the moment? Like, what's the stuff that gives you the buzz for me it's always been about helping other people and I've always got more enjoyment from seeing other people be their best than I got from my own career which is really weird I had a fantastic career very proud but genuinely I get far more excited far more joy playing a part in someone's journey rather than my own yeah I love that story you just told and we won't go into the whole story but but the fact that someone had achieved a goal that they had, but also they were they were just more confident and they had girlfriends and that was like the stuff you were measuring success on, which I uh, which obviously fueled my biases. Yeah, for sure. And that's something I was always measured on on results and, and was brutal to myself. So I think that's why then I lean into the bigger picture from my own experience as such, but there's so much, what is success? You try and define it and it's, it's completely different for everyone. So why do we then measure everyone on the same yardstick as such? And I was going to ask you, where does that come from? Like that want to support and help. And, and do you think that's, I mean, there's clearly be, I'm sure several factors, but do you think that's like the big one is your experiences and actually the impact they had on you? Yeah, I think the mental health um, struggles that I went through during my career and, and continue to manage now. And and also, I just don't feel I was treated particularly well at times. Um, and I think professional sport is just wrong. It's built in so many wrong, just awful ways um, when we're talking about human beings. And it's something I experienced firsthand. So then, then I kind of get incredibly passionate about breaking that and, and doing things differently and in the way I feel I think it's typical of coaches, isn't it? A lot of us will look at how we wish we were coached or how we were treated, and, and then that fuels a lot of how we work. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I took, you know, would want to be the coach I never had, would be the way I would describe it. And I'm going to start off at the beginning in a second, but I was curious, like you spoke about breaking professional sport. If you could, like, give professional sport two gifts, 
and I'm sure we're going to delve into them on the pod. What would the gifts be? Uh, the first one is that everyone you work with is a human being. That's the first. It's a hum- You work with people. You work with humans. That's number one. And then the other one would be patience. Oh, poor young athletes who feel that they have to achieve everything within 10 seconds. And just because one of them did it once because they were just an exception to the rule, suddenly we all measure ourselves on that. So for me, be human, have some patience. Um, But I do appreciate that is difficult in some environments. It's not as simple as us saying it, but I do feel those are two lessons that that could be utilised a bit better. Yeah, I think the uh, there's a couple of stories from my time uh, uh, more recently in rugby where um, I heard um, players being referred to as um, cattle, and then I also heard uh, we were told that we were no longer to call them players or people. We had to call them athletes, and that kind of I thought that was weird. And then the other thing I'm thinking about it's probably like. I had a conversation with a couple of coaches today, working with other coaches, and the thing that really helped me, and I I definitely remember getting really frustrated with coaches thinking like, but we could sort this out really quickly, but that's just not how it happens. Like, And I probably just became much more comfortable that it was going to be a bit more of a journey. It might take a little bit longer. It's going to be some ups and downs and, if I probably like preempt the fact that's going to happen, I'll I'll feel a bit more chilled about the situation. Uh, now I might be like a little bit agitated inside, but I'm generally better at demonstrating patience. Although oh, I wish I wish when I was young someone had told me there was a journey. Um, yeah, that was that would have been a huge huge help during my career and and the expectations and pressure and and the things that overwhelmed me at times. Uh, if someone had just been human in their communication and and in then teaching me that would have made such a difference well should we go back to the beginning you can go back you can go back as far as you want it's your choice oh so i had no interest in sport as a as a young kid it wasn't until i say young by the age of seven obviously i love sport but I tried out for my district sports at school, running down the grass track. I actually zigzagged across all the lanes and got in trouble for breaking my lane. I obviously got better at that as I as I ran more, but that's where I kind of went, oh, I quite like being told I'm good at something and, and winning things. It wasn't actually, did I enjoy running? It was, I really enjoy praise and all those things that come with it. And, and I kind of started from there and you know, I I loved I started loving sport and so on. Rugby is my favourite sport, still is. And I remember my mum saying to me when I was like fourteen, I was like, "Why are you playing rugby? The only reason you're good at it is because you can run fast. So why don't you just stick to running?" She's a very wise woman, is my mum. Yeah, uh, well, Johnny then, Ma- Johnny May did all right. He's pretty quick, you know. Let me see. Yeah, he can catch a ball though, so uh, <laughs> that's the difference there. But yeah, by the age of uh, 14, I, I was doing 800 metres and high jump, six foot four. So high jump was was just a natural. I wasn't jumping. I was just falling. Um, I just fell from a higher point than others at that age. Um, then I, I started the 400 metres. I still had a bit of speed in my legs and I, I ran a time in a relay that put me top 10 in the country. and was like, cool, this is one I'll do now because it was all about success. It wasn't No one chooses 400. Let's be honest, it's horrible. And then I went one step further where because of my height and a local coach who was a hurdles coach said, oh, I'll give four hurdles a go. And uh, so I did 400 hurdles, broke British record for my age, first race and was like, yep, I'm in. 
and yeah, my, my career was really easy from there, to be honest with you. I won everything. I was unbeaten. I never failed. I avoided failure. Um, by the age of 18, I was third at the World Juniors, um, picked up a contract with Nike, moved down to Bath with Malcolm Arnold, who coached Colin Jackson, John Akibua, Di Green. And if you don't know those names, they're world record holders, world champions, Olympic champions, best of the best, all the people I watched on TV, right? Yeah, yeah. I moved there and I'm, I'm turning 19 and I'm 105th in the world at the time I moved to Bath. Um, and my dream from the age of seven, I was writing stories about winning the Olympics. And now at 19, it's like, oh, I'm a pro. And I went from one season, I went 105th in the world to 16th. I was training with Di Green, who was a world champion that year. I went to the world championships as well at 19, which is brilliant. Um, I became the youngest ever winner of European under 23s. And I thought life was really easy, quite frankly. I thought my destiny was to just be better than everyone. I was like, yeah, I worked hard. Of course I did. But I didn't do anything more than another professional would in, in such. So I was like, yeah, I'm going to win the Olympics next year at 20 years old. Um, I was thinking 105th to 16th. Why can't I go from 16th to first? That sounds easy. Uh, little did I know it's not. Young, <laughs> well, young people and naivety. But um, I went to those Olympics. I became really inconsistent that year because I put so much pressure on myself to be Olympic champion in waiting. So I was just up and down because the intensity was too much. So some days I'd be a superstar. The next I'd be awful because I just couldn't sustain it. But last race before the Olympics, I ran a personal best that put me sixth in the world beat the reigning Olympic champion, just like, right, cool. I'm going to be, I'm at least going to be Olympic medalist because you're just confident. Went into those Olympic games. Uh, I can't tell you anything about it because I don't remember it. The only thing I remember is being full of fear. It was almost like all these choices and sacrifices I'd made, I had to show that it was worth it. Um, and I just worried all about the consequences, all about what might go wrong, rather than the opportunity that I had ahead of me. And I fell in the semi-final, hit the third hurdle, and I fell in front of 80,000 people, millions at home. Nice bit of abuse on Twitter and all of that jazz for not doing my job properly. But that was that was my first Olympic experience. And I was still ranked sixth in the world. The time that I, I ran two weeks before would have made the Olympic final. I wouldn't have won it, but I could have been a, a sixth, seventh, whatever. Amazing for a 20-year-old in an event dominated by people between the age of 28 and 32. I then went into the relay, ran really well, but we came fourth, uh, missed a medal by 0.13 of a second. And and then, yeah, then my journey really starts because that's when I, I was shortly after that, I was diagnosed with depression, bipolar tendencies, and anxiety. It was considered a threat to my to my own life and, and spent six weeks in the Priory. Um, and I struggled for a long time after the Olympics, not because not because I didn't achieve what I wanted to at the Olympics. That's not why I struggle mental health. I still manage it now. And I definitely managed it when I was young, but I didn't believe in mental health. Like I'm male sports person successful. I thought mental health was just an excuse for weak people. And I was nicknamed the green machine as well. Two hearts, four lungs, green machine, doesn't get tired, all of this. So I saw myself as a robot, saw myself as, you know, um, indestructible. And then, yeah, I felt all these things and I ended up in just a horrible place and took two years out. And, and in summary, I returned to the sport. I ended up coaching myself, funding myself, uh, training on my own every day, moved to Florida for a year, moved back here back to the UK. I ended up being a European world medalist, uh, came fourth at Commonwealth, back in the top 10 multiple times, but then decided to retire at 28, which 
outside of my my circle and people understand mental health they just don't understand it's definitely the bravest decision I've ever made because it went against the norm it went against what society expects from me but I couldn't come up with one reason internally as to why I wanted to run still so I made that decision and then uh, moved into the well-being world workplace well-being which I'm sure we'll talk about at some point but yeah that's what I do now right that's uh wow well thanks for sharing that and that's ranted there yeah, mate. No, it's cool. I mean, so many things I'm curious about, like pressure on myself. Like, I'm really interested in that. I'm definitely interested in the social media. I don't believe in mental health. You mentioned that you were male and like the impact of that. So I don't know whether you want to pick up on any of those threads or all of those threads that I've just dangled in front of you. Yeah, so in terms of the pressure and expectation, I just thought I was... I was meant to be. I was voted the most talented athlete of a generation. I believed all this hype. I was trained. The the thing as well, which was the best and worst thing for me, is I trained with the world champion. And I had that physical measure every single day of what the best in the world was. And I was in front of him some on the flat. If you take the hurdles out of the way, I was faster than, than Di. And he's a fantastic athlete and one of the best competitors I've ever met. But on the flat, I was quicker. So I'm ahead of him. Cool. Now my expectation is I'm ahead of him in training. Therefore, I must be world number one. And that was quite a dangerous thing because it put the pressure and expectation on me because I could feel it. It's different in athletics when you don't see the other athletes. It's not till you get onto the track that on race day that you can get that actual measure. Um, so I think that it was fantastic because it pushed me forward and made me very successful, but it was dangerous in terms of my mindset. I was, I was too I was too good too early, frankly, um, for for my emotional intelligence and my experience. And did you have so something? I'm obviously. I mean, and look, I would have had some probably some similar experiences to you. I mean, <clears throat> moved to Bath a little bit after you, but like lots of success. Like I, I was definitely like. I remember they asked me at the start when I went to Bath, what do you want to achieve? And I said, oh, I'm going to play for the British Lions. Like I did, I missed out all the steps in between. And then the thing I, I often think a lot about, and I'm, I'm definitely keen on your reflections on this, was I really needed a mentor. Oh. Like if I'd had, and, and only because I worked with Richard Hill MBE, and he would have been a, 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 about my age, really, to be honest. So we were competitors on the pitch. But if I had him now, like Tom Curry does, like Ben Earl does, then I think it would have it would have helped me a lot. I can I can relate so much. I was so like Di taught me so much as a world champion, but he is super intense, and we are not similar in terms of how we would approach life. Like if you could design your mentor, so if I could go like Jack, come on, you can now design retrospectively your perfect mentor. Like, tell me about them. Um, I think two of the things we brought up about them communicating how as a human being and taking away the egotistical side um, would have been huge. I had a huge ego, but it was full of insecurity and fear. Um, Teaching me that patience elements, those first two I say about coaching. Someone who just cared would be a massive thing for me and understood me instead of their idea of what a high performer would be. I was in quite an old school environment where it was, you work hard, you run hard, you lift heavy. If you're not broken, you're the best. And actually I needed a bit more than that. I needed that, that whole rounded, the emotional intelligence to, because actually I was just really insecure. And that's why I was being successful was because I was just 
running away from that insecurity. And that wasn't being identified because the results were papering over that. Oh, well, he's a fantastic athlete, so there's no problem there. When actually, I was a fantastic young athlete who could have done more, but I didn't have the right support. Um, and that's not anyone's fault, right? These things happen. I'm not blaming anyone. I have to take accountability for a lot of it as well. Um, but yeah, for uh, to have a mentor, it would be the patience, the human element, someone that genuinely cared and valued me as a person, not just as a number, which we know in sport happens too often. Um, you're a commodity and you're a number. And when your, your sell-by date's done or whatever it might be, it's see you later instead of, or the performance you know, numbers go, no one asks you why, they just find someone else that can do it instead of actually working with someone. So for me, a big part of it's around care and duty of care. And that's not just about the athlete, that's about the person. Nice. And I was curious about the social media stuff, because I often, same again, I'm, I'm a little bit older than you, fortunately, but I was, I can remember vividly an article in the paper written by my coach having a proper go at me and <clears throat> Nathan Thomas, who also played seven. And I was thinking, that's not that helpful. And then I look at social media and I'm on it and actually generally get positive stuff and but I do wonder, like, like if you are competing today and like stuff doesn't go so well, and it's um, yeah, I'm fascinated. Like, I'm, and yeah, I mean, what was that like for you? Like, yeah, really tough. So, to give you my view on social media, I don't have it anymore. Uh, I delete. I had a large amount of followers on various things. I, I've got I've got accounts now that signpost, and now I put a couple of business things up. But I don't have the apps. I put up the post. I don't follow anyone. Done, because it's not helpful. And, and working in the well-being world, I've read so many reports and studies that showed how bad it was for mental health. I have a hard enough time on my own, let alone adding in this influence. Yeah. Um, so I got rid of them. And the problem as well is I'm I like people, and as I said, I want to help people. So I genuinely, and at the time, I really cared about people's expectations, opinions, and so on. So after every race, I'd be going on social media and being like, oh, what's being said, and so on, and, and genuinely caring too much. And I think that happens with our young people. If With my athletes now, and if I get to work with more talented athletes, I mentor athletes, continue to do that now. I'm just like, it's business. Treat it as business. Put up the post so that your sponsor pays you and that you have a profile delete the app, don't need to go on there, you don't even need to follow anyone, just put it up, get off. There is nothing that good, good that comes of it really, other than, you know, you can make great connections, you and I connected through social media, I've made great connections with lots of people, I have LinkedIn for business, but in terms of that proper social media, no, thank you, and just can't, it's, it's, it's fake, it's, the social comparison is brutal, the amount of athletes I hear that say, oh yeah, but this person did put this video up, it's just it's a load of rubbish it doesn't mean anything just yeah for me I hate it absolutely hate it I think it is um a curse on sport but you have to have it for sponsorship you have to have it for promotion you know most of the in in athletics most of the shoe companies that are sponsoring I was with Nike Nike are, are going for people with influence right so people with influence uh, who's got the biggest social media following so you have to understand from a business point of view but i can completely understand why in some sports like football and so on their agents handle their social media because it's a dangerous thing yeah i had a few days off when i changed phones recently and it was uh, it was joyful admittedly i'm back on 
because like I, you know it, it, it connects us with some coaches so uh yeah I'm uh maybe I just need to have some days where I, I use it less and then I was like curious about like when you just said like, I just didn't believe in it and then I wondered why you added that you were male and obviously like I'm, I'm assuming it's kind of some of the traditions of being a man and being tough and manning up and you know getting on with it and you know you said you worked hard I imagine training these days is possibly slightly different and a bit more smarter than it used to be so yeah I'm just curious about like <clears throat> why didn't you believe in it and, and and what was the impact of what do you think the impact of being a man is so the male side is the fact that you look at, at suicides in this country and it's it's 70 percent plus a, a, a men um so there's clearly some issue there around men uh, masculinity the way that we we don't share we're not allowed emotions we're not allowed to be vulnerable even though vulnerability is so important in in everything we do and and unfortunately has a negative kind of connotation around it um but so that was a big part well i'm a man and i have to be a man and i can't behave this way i can't behave that way and that leans into the sports person as well i used to wear this armor that basically just said I'm not allowed to feel weak. I'm not allowed to feel sad. I'm not allowed to feel fear, all these things, because I am special. I'm a superhero. I'm on this pedestal. But the problem was, as soon as I did feel any of those things, I had no management or no tools or acceptance for them. And then I'd feel even worse than if I just felt them normally, because I was saying, well, I can't be like that. And then I'd feel them inevitably because I'm a human being. And yeah, I'd, I'd have a little breakdown and feel overwhelmed about it. So, and then, yeah, for me, it's, I didn't believe in it. I've never experienced it. No one had ever talked about it around me. I was in sport where even more so we wouldn't talk about it because I remember just as a, as a young, young kid training and it was like, you're absolutely knackered at the end of a run, right? All you want to do is go on the floor and die for a little bit. And coach saying to you, no, you have to walk off this track. No one can see you be weak because you'll, you'll give the opposition like, a kind of glimpse into the fact that you've got a weakness or you're soft or whatever it might be. And I remember being told, go off where no one can see you and then you can break down essentially. And that then, because my identity was being an athlete, that then translated into me as a person. So it was like, well, I can't show these things because I can't show it and I'm an athlete. And that was really dangerous. Um, like, you know, the coach at the time didn't mean it in that way. Of course not. And I do get the, the aspect of, I remember going to training camps with some of the best athletes in the world. And I'd walk off the track like it was nothing. They'd be like, you're incredible. How are you doing this? And inside I was dying, absolutely dying. But I was doing that in my normal life. Um, I wasn't able to, you know, differentiate between the two. And, and that was huge. So just for me, I just never experienced it so I didn't believe in it and all I'd been told about mental health was it was just something for weak people it was always something it was something negative and I didn't have negativity in my life because I was a superstar and a superstar in waiting um so yeah it's it's a really interesting one about then how the language we use and and the, what we ask of our athletes um because it does translate into them as, as human beings as well yeah it was two things I was thinking about there one was like um like did you ever speak to the people from back then and go, look, this was not that helpful or this would have been helpful? And then I was also curious about the boundaries. Like, where were they between, like, you and this and, you know, and, and the green machine? Or, or was there no boundaries? Was it like there's this one thing and it's the, and this is everything to me? Yeah, it was an all or nothing game. 
uh, very black and white in how I looked at the world. I either win the race with a world record or I'm a failure. Um, I'm an athlete 24-7 um, because what happens in sport a lot of the time, as you all know, you're, always made to, you're almost made to feel guilty if you think about or look at any any alternative or have a side hustle or a, a passion or a hobby. And you're made to feel guilty like you're cheating on your sport. So, oh, if you're not, you're not giving 100% all the time, then you're clearly not serious about it or you don't want to be the best. So then I just lived it. And I'm the reasons why I tend to be to be successful in certain things is because I can be really intense. I can be obsessive and I'm very good at it. But that's also the reason why I struggle at times because I won't manage it and I won't put the boundaries in and I'll go too far with the intensity, too far with the obsession. Um, so yeah, having some some knowledge and experience or some guidance from a mentor so uh, around that would have been really helpful. And in terms of speaking to people from beforehand, so the first coach who, who did that with me is one of the best coaches I've ever worked with, but just didn't realise the, the impact on an individual like myself because not everyone would take it that way, but an individual like myself, that I might take that further than just on the track. And she's brilliant. She She's a fantastic coach, um, best technical coach I've ever met. And I've worked with some of the best coaches in the world. And she's just a club coach as such. And she also cares a lot. So, you know, she took that to heart and, and really, you know, was almost apologetic around mm. it without it being her fault. But yeah, in terms of other coaches, no, not quite. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? I wonder whether people would like after like a you know a high profile situation that you were clearly in like I wondered whether people would reach out and go may I you know I'd just love to you know help you make sense of this or is there anything you know I'm, I'm really fascinated by that because I've had a, a couple of texts recently from coaches who said oh I think it would be helpful if you touch base with this player like they're having a tough time type stuff and I would like 100% like, oh, yeah, I'm definitely going to pick up the phone and try and help them. And that brings value for me um, is the main thing around that. It brings value to that person that they're being thought of and that someone cares about them. For example, I retired, essentially, my little break from sport at the age of 21. I was sixth in the world. I came fourth at the Olympics. I had six weeks of um, psychiatry which had to be done through UKA, through my funding. After that, they don't have to do anything. I haven't had one bit since. I haven't had the communication around my mental health since. Yet I returned to the sport. I funded myself to move to Florida. I became top 10 in the world for multiple years, was a world and European medalist, and I coached myself whilst doing it and funded myself through working in a gym, doing my keynote talks. And yet there wasn't one conversation. And at this point that I retired, I was the arguably one of the most talented athletes we had and yet no one picked up when I took that year and a half off I didn't have one phone call so if you tell me you know there's something broken there and it wasn't that I needed to come back to but why didn't anyone just care so that's when I say about a mentor that genuinely cares it showed that no one cared about me as a person they just cared about what I could deliver on a track and because I couldn't deliver that anymore I wasn't I wasn't necessary so yeah, similar stories in rugby. I, I, I went for a walk and a talk with a player recently. Who'd, yeah, like a, um, a significant injury um, that basically ended his career. Um, n- nothing from the club. Uh, without speaking to him, they just cut his salary. Like, my mind was officially blown. Yeah, I was curious, actually, because actually, like, I'm really interested in the coaching yourself bit, like... 
what was different? Like, obviously you would like, there's, there's perhaps not this person there, like with a stopwatch, that's what I imagine they do. Um, <clears throat> but what changed? So what did you do differently? So I had been in Florida for a year and worked with Lauren Seagrave, who's coached some like 80 Olympic medalists in various events. And he's the most intelligent person I've ever met. So going there for a year, because I asked lots of questions, because I wanted to be a coach and I, I wanted to know what I was doing and why. And I was curious. So it was like going to uni. I, it's like I got a degree in coaching. Without going to him, I wouldn't be able to write programs, plan programs the way I do. But I'd also worked down in Bath before, which was old school. So Lauren in Florida was smart work. At times I was like, I'm not even training. And yet I got exactly the same result time-wise as when I was absolutely destroying myself. So I kind of took, I kept training. I always keep training diaries. So I just looked at them all. I pieced together the times of the year, the sessions I thought were important. I then had my philosophy of there's somewhere in the middle of these two. I'm not doing enough with this one. I'm working too smart at times with this one. And I'm not, I'm working too hard with this one. Can I find somewhere in the middle? And then I'd read bits and talk to other athletes and coaches. It's like, oh, why are you doing that? Um, and yeah, and then I, I just designed it for me in terms of what am I good at? I've always been someone that's like, I only I got to this place as being an Olympic athlete because I'm really good at something. My superpower is the fact I don't feel lactic like other people. For some reason, I don't die in races. I get better, whereas other people just die off, right? So it's kind of like, that's why I'm here. That's my superpower. So I'm just going to do a lot of that. And that was my thing. I'll just do a lot of that. I'll make that almost like perfect not that perfect's a thing but that's my aim I'm going to make that incredible because that's what I'm good at I think too often we look at well you're not very good at this so we should increase that but that's not what got me here I'm not good at that that won't get me in the team won't get me whatever what got me here was being good at this so I just did a lot of that trained twice a day every day um on my own that was tough every bit of weather on just the track that I started on when I was seven years old um and yeah, just kind of just got on with it. The one thing that obviously I lacked, luckily, technically, I was I was pretty good. Um, but obviously, I lacked any of that that external eye and, and just the cleaning up of things, particularly as a hurdler, um, when you have stride patterns. But we were talking about earlier self-awareness. All my self-awareness went through the roof because I couldn't rely on anyone else. You know, I was giving myself the feedback. So if I didn't give it, I wasn't getting any. So it made me incredibly aware Um of, of just everything I was doing. Mm. Nice. And I'm, <clears throat> I'm curious about your transition into coaching and, and you, and actually you just made me think when you were talking earlier about vulnerability, like wouldn't it be great if all professional sports team just uh, had a sign on the outside saying, uh, please leave your armor at the door. Oh, I'd love that. Oh, that's, I, I'm going to steal that. You best not, there's, there must, there can't be a copyright or anything on that. I like it too much. Because I'm the same, like you go into places and people are, they're just wearing armour. Like they're just like, been into quite a few places recently where I thought, that's like not the you I know. Like you're not being you here. And like, I'm fascinated by it. Like, so let's, let's look at that from a performance yeah. aspect. So if you wear an armor, you're not you're not all of yourself, right? So you're not 100% of yourself. Yet on a pitch, on a track, I need 100% of you. But if you're always wearing an armor, I'm all, I'm never getting all of you, regardless of how much you think you are. So it's not until you can be vulnerable, be open, be authentically you, that you will get that extra little bit. 
So that's that's a huge point on that for me is, well, you can't open up if you're wearing a mask because it's not you. I spoke to a premiership coach. Um, I'm not going to go any further than that. But <laughs> he, he, when he knew he was leaving his job, he said, I was able to be me. <laughs> and and they said, if we'd, if we'd seen this, we wouldn't have sacked you. And did you ask him why he wasn't beforehand? Because that's the interesting. I just didn't, yeah, I mean, just didn't feel able to be. Just felt like, and 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 sometimes, of course, that's like ex- explicit, like do this. But sometimes it's, yeah. I sometimes think like, are you sure? Like, I remember like uh, doing some work in an academy football team, and the coach said, "Oh, we're doing this like this because the academy manager likes it." And I'm like, "Are you sure?" Like, or you're just like imagining that, like, because I can go and check if you want. I can go and find out. Um, yeah, I mean, but it's like, sometimes it's it's just the tradition, isn't it? It's just like, yeah, I'm kind of assumed that this is the case, or that people in more senior positions haven't signposted or said, look, we something I, I really remember from Fletch with the 18s was just signposting people when they came in. We want you to be yourself. I'm only going to remember the best bits. I'm going to delete all the other bits. I'm really excited about your best bits. Like, that's a pretty good introduction to England under-18s. Yeah, that's straight away you've created safety, right? That's saying that I want you to try things. It doesn't matter if you fail. You're just learning, whatever that might be. And if, if we did that more often, I think you'd get some great creativity and things you've never seen. The things that actually excite people, right? But for me yeah if I if someone had just said to me do you know what it doesn't matter if things go wrong oh it would have been I'd have learned so much more <laughs> um, I was never in that world I was just constantly I was always scared of what could go wrong rather than what could go right so I'd never try things I'd never did you have, did you have people that tried to tell you that did you have like friends or family that went come on Jack you're being tough on yourself here it's like we'll still love you tomorrow Hey, will you tell everyone what you're up to at Core 37? Hi, Fletch. We're a teamwear brand based in the northeast, and we're the sister company of Oddballs. We've got the largest sports sublimation factory in the UK, and we've produced for the biggest brands in Europe over the past seven years. But with Core 37, our in-house brand, you can now access those prices direct to the customer. Why would people use Core 37? Uh, if I was to pick three, Fletch, it would be our lead time of three to four weeks our price, which is lower than anybody else in the industry, and the fact that we're made here in the UK. What's the stuff you're most proud of at Core 37? Oh, there's loads of stuff, but the, the key one for me would be working for a company that, that genuinely believes in its own mission statement, which is to produce performance sportswear at an affordable price. And then underpinning that is the people. Everybody who works here is involved in grassroots sport in some way. And so we genuinely care about what we're doing here. Fletch, why do you want to partner with Core 37? Uh, apart from the fact you're Geordie, uh, great people, uh, lots of people involved in sport, really affordable and top quality. Thanks for joining us, Wilkie. Anyone who wants to find out more can go and have a play on their website at core-37.com or they can reach out directly to tom at core-37.com. I always knew that. My mum is a child and well-being behavioural uh, expert so she's she's bang on with all of that kind of stuff and she's brilliant and, and we're very close single parent family and that but it just didn't have the same message right it didn't have the same impact um, and what you were talking about earlier is around permission 
um, and and from people that you you look up to. I talk about it in in workplace wellbeing, where it's like leaders, I need you to give permission because unfortunately, no matter where you are, there is hierarchy. Um, no matter how flat a structure you try to create, there's always some hierarchy. Um, so I need you to give people permission to be a certain way, to feel a certain way, to make mistakes, to do this. Otherwise, they feel like they can't because we'll always presume we can't do these things rather than, oh, I presume I can fail. Yeah. Well, no, that's too big a risk as a human being, right? That's too big a risk to presume I can get something wrong. Um, it's, it's a lot safer to not. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, it has to be role modelling and it has to be permission. I don't want to leave the tribe and get caught by the saber-toothed tiger type stuff. Yeah. And and so how's it influenced like you as a coach? Like what, what do you hope, like if you could, if I could go and meet some of the people you coached and I said, oh, come on, give me Jack in three words. What would you love them? What would be the words you would want them to say? I'm trying to distinguish between the words I want them and the ones I would. Yeah, um, we can explore that gap at some yeah, point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, the what, ones I'd want. What are you going for? What are you aiming for? For me, it's, I'd like to think, understanding um, is, is a really big one. Um, it's close to empathetic, isn't it? But understanding, I like people to know that I'm serious, right? So as much as I'm really open and I really care, I also, this is business as well. So yeah. I love having that side of it. I want um, challenging. So people might go, oh, it's a bit, some of this stuff, you know, this love and care and understanding is a big pink and fluffy rusty i'm going yeah yeah but it's for challenge yeah 100 <laughs> and then the last one would probably be passionate i think that is a like i genuinely passionate I'm passionate about sport i'm passionate about high performance i'm passionate about my people i passionately care um so yeah passion is a huge one for me it's a huge driver in everything i do Nice. Uh, and you mentioned high performance and I know we touched on it beforehand and I'm going to give my like pennies worth. Uh, my sense is I often think that there's some traditions around what people think performance is. Mm -hmm. I'm often underwhelmed by performance environments and, and sometimes they are not preparing people for performance, even though they say they are. Definitely. And, you know, we've talked about it. It's the same in the work I do now. It's all individual. So I'm in a head of performance role at a well-being platform. Now, really, they contradict each other in the way that we look at things. Well, how can you be high performance and be nice with well-being? But for me, it's inclusive, right? And I have to answer this all the time. And it's like, well, you're an Olympian and I'm not an Olympian. So how I'm not your high performance. I'm like, performance is inclusive. Everyone has performance. Whether you're trying to be a better player or runner, you're trying to be a better friend, a better person, a better parent, better anything. We're always trying to improve. That's performance. We are all in a performance environment all the time because we're trying to be better. And we're all in a well-being environment because we all have well-being. But what is performance for me is different for you. So me trying to be the best I can be results in me going to an Olympics because I've chosen that field. I'm very lucky to have the abilities to, to go down that route. But that's no different to someone else trying to be the best they can be at whatever it is. So that's where I look at performance. And you talk about the environments being underwhelming. And, and I agree because the problem is they're trying to prescribe performance. And performance is, as we said, is individual. So one thing, and that's why you get some fantastic players that might end up in one environment and, and just not 
not work at all. And you're like, well, how's that happen? We've got a fantastic performance environment, but you can't prescribe performance because it's individual. So, yeah, I'm curious because, um, like, coming from a world where, like, someone said to me yesterday, oh, um, I was speaking to a sailing coach and I was talking about a meeting he was hosting. He said, oh, yeah, there's, you know, so there's a lot of people in there. There'll be 10 people there. And I was thinking, like, that's tiny for a rugby meeting. Like, there might be 50. And that let's like make that even bigger if it's American football and then other sports is more individual. So I'm curious, like I'm with you, like this stuff is individual, like uh, the, the, the mental uh, side of the game, individual, the well-being, individual, performance, individual. But often people get into teams and I, I think one of the traditions are definitely in our sport is we then just kind of, deliver to everyone like stuff um without so i was curious as to like i guess how you found that you might coach groups of athletes you would definitely in your new role deal with teams of people with individuals in it and i guess like is there a is there a a versus is there you know against is there a you know how, how does that i mean what are you thinking about when i describe that stuff well, we're very lucky in athletics, it's individual. Um, obviously, there's a team element because it takes an army to, to get someone to the top, right? It's, it's not just that one person on their own. I have six athletes. I work with them all completely differently. Their programs are different because it's like me taking five 400-meter hurdlers and giving them the same program. It's not going to work for all of them because they're not all the same. Um, I was you, you look at Europeans they're typically strength based you look at then your Americans your Caribbeans Africans they're speed based so I can't give them the same programs and, and the same with with everyone so that has to be individual but luckily with athletics we can do that but you see it a lot then if you have a bigger group that will be like oh we need everyone to run together so all three of you are doing this program and it's like one does really well one's just average one's awful yet they're all very talented athletes and that's because you're not prescribing to them um, so I think in terms of teams, it's understanding, well, I have values and I have non-negotiables um, outside of that in my environment that I, I expect. But then it's how do I then cater to the individual? And unfortunately, it takes a lot of time and it takes a lot of thought. And that's why a lot of people don't do it, because it's effort. Um, and in, a, in sport, it's easy just to change people in and out and find someone that does fit to it. Um, I always think the best coaches I've ever ever seen are the ones that bring through multiple athletes rather than just going well I've got 10 they've all done the same stuff and one's the best in the world so now everyone thinks I'm a great coach but what happened to the other nine so you're not a great coach because nine of them are rubbish um, or are broken or, or struggling whatever it might be so for me it's yes you can have a team environment yes you need structure in some points not in everything but for me, it's more guidelines, boundaries, values, and then how do I cater to the individual to get the most out of them? Yeah. Uh, which coaches would you give a shout out to? So in the like disciplines that you've you've been around or you're hearing about people and you spoke about, I think that's a great way of measuring it. Something I consider like as a coach again is like, well, what happens to the environment when you leave it as well? So often people go, oh, he's really good because when he left, they got worse and Sometimes wouldn't it be great if like Man United were still winning the league after Alex Ferguson left? I'm not saying that's always possible. There's clearly other factors. But who have you heard about or who have you been coached by that you go in? 
this person's got some some expertise here. The best coach I ever worked with was, was my first coach. Genuinely, she had, when I joined the group when I was 14, down in Kent, in Canterbury, which isn't the best uh, catchment area, she had 10 athletes in different events, all in the top 10 in the country. And she was doing it three times a week on her local track. Like, that for me is success. She's not being handed athletes, because at the top of the sport, we think coaches are really good, but it's not hard to be a good coach when you're given the best. Right? It's, it's, It's easy. Because a lot of the time, they're really talented. And even if I give them something that doesn't really work, they're so talented that it'll work anyway. But obviously, I haven't got them anywhere near their ceiling, so I'm still doing them a disservice. But people don't know that because they're still good and they can't measure the ceiling. So for me, it's like, am I able to bring people through without being handed them multiple people? I can't tell you too many. I always found it really... It's an interesting one, isn't it? Why do our best coaches work at the top of the sport with, where there's no very little development, right? Even though there should still be loads of development, you should always be developing. Why don't we bring them down to, you know, the younger and, and then we'll yeah, bring they them get impact. They could impact more people as well. That's the... yeah. Now, obviously, not everyone wants to. Not everyone has that ambition, right? So you have to then cater to the coach as an individual because that's really important too because you need them in, uh, invested and and excited about their coaching but you just think it feels just a bit upside down to me it's like yeah let's let's give uh barry's dad will coach you for for the first six years of your your career and you'll either make it or you won't be off pure talent because you haven't been doing the right stuff or, or just luck of of being in the right environment that just worked for you and then we'll fix all your problems for the next however long just a bit weird um yeah, coaching's a strange one. Yeah, I, I mean, look, and, and in rugby, it's a postcode lottery. Like, mm-hmm. you know, that's the reality. What do you notice about athletics and coach development? So, again, would that be a, an area that you've noticed there's been growth in or it's something that actually they're scratching the surface? Um, is it focused around people or is it focused around technical? Like, I wouldn't – we used to do running A's at Rotherham on uh, – <laughs> Herring Thorpe Field, that's like as far as it goes for me in terms of, you know, and heel flicks. Is that in terms of technical stuff? But yeah, what have you noticed around like your sport? I'm curious. The real sad thing for me is we're a fantastic sport, right? When you come to the Olympics, how good is athletics? Everyone loves it. Brilliant sport. Yet we rely on volunteers to coach the next generation, bring them through and so on and they don't I did I did the level two which qualifies you as a coach and yeah I didn't learn a thing um it was literally like can you coach some toddlers and then you're I'm qualified to coach events that I have no idea how to coach um and then all your development is just dependent on you and where you go with it and we're relying on when people have full-time jobs who who just don't, and it's not their fault, they don't have the experience, they don't have the knowledge, they don't have the time or the finances to, to move forward with it. But then we've just got a real lack of coaches. But then you've got the balance of, have we got enough coaches coming through? So you've got to get them through somehow so we have the numbers, but is the quality there? In my opinion, it's not. Just because as an athlete, I coach myself for a reason, and that's because I didn't believe that there were coaches good enough for the level I wanted to be that I couldn't trust coaches um, to work with me. And that's, that's not great. Is it like I should have been looking and going, yeah, cool. Here are your options. Yeah. Um, 
and I or I shouldn't have had to move to Florida and sell everything I own to work with a coach because it was the only one that I trusted or the only one that I valued who re- who also reached out to me it was a big part of it. Um, yeah, I don't think it's in a good place. I think we're we're in quite a bad place regarding coaching in athletics, but they are there's some changes within British athletics and so on and and it's something that will 100% be addressed I've done some work with England athletics in the end at 29 years old I have been a flying coach and been seen as like a coach that goes around and talks to other coaches for and you just think I'm 29 I retired a year ago I shouldn't be the person that's doing this I just feel that's not as good as coach I might be or I want to be, that's not really how it should work. Yeah, I agree. And, and, and the reality is, and same in rugby, like the, the best way to have better players is probably to have better coaches. It's, uh, it, it can be helpful. So how's all this stuff? So I'm really curious about your new role now. Like what's the, what's, what are you taking into your new role and what's the stuff that's going on? And you've been, uh, 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 the two words I would use to describe you in our chats of the last two weeks are enthused and tired. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like um, all into this new job, which I'm loving, and you're talking about all the stuff you're learning, and and then you also like it's probably like the you you know you're back into like immersed passionately into something, and it's probably giving a lot of yourself. So I'm curious, yeah, what's like what's going on? Yeah, so I was very, very fortunate. Um, a couple of months after retiring, I got offered the job to be the well-being lead at BBC Studios. I started a week before the original lockdown, and I was responsible for 30 offices globally and between five and 10,000 people. I never had a job before, so um, that was great fun. Uh, that was not good for my well-being at times, I can tell you now, um, but I was incredibly proud of what I did. I wrote a strategy for BBC Studios that they're implementing at the moment to look after their people. The reason I got it was because I'd done a lot of work in mental health, being an ambassador, being very passionate. I had my coaching side that showed I could manage people and and they just wanted someone that could come in and and just be the face of it, essentially, and push forward. Now, my whole philosophy is what I was talking about there, performance and well-being living together. And the reason why maybe I've done well in in the well-being world is because well-being's been too soft. It's been too nice. It's been a nice to have. It's putting fruit bowls at the end of tables that's not well-being um, that's not looking after people that's fruit bowls at the end of tables um, so I came in and just basically looked at it from a performance side of things because that's the world I'm from and just gone why this doesn't make sense because for me well-being is the noise in your life right outside of your profession so all that noise affects me personally so if I'm able to manage that noise be thriving personally I'm more likely to thrive professionally we all know if I've got stresses in my life, financial, physical, mental, social, that's going to take away from what I can give when I need to, when I need to perform. So that's how I look at it. It's the foundation of high performance. If I've got that in order, it allows me to do the, those top detail bits, that top performance bit. Um, so yeah, I worked at, at BBC. I left them after eight months because I wanted to be able to impact more people. I wanted to be able to coach alongside it. I wasn't able to do that at the time. So I started my own consultancy, worked with um, quite a few global organizations, just advising how I would look at things, which isn't always right. It's just how I look at things, right? It might not fit for a certain organization. I try my best. But yeah, I was then offered the opportunity to be head of performance at Champion Health. That's a workplace well-being platform. I met them when I was at BBC and I was just like, these guys get it. 
these guys like they're passionate it's yeah you need to make money yeah you need to do this but when they're making money they're reinvesting it in the product to help people and it's about it's all about helping people um and they understood how i looked at well-being that it was about performance so started working with them um last week and as you said i've been doing i was on a laptop today at seven i had an hour off for dinner and here we are so um you know very long days but i'm doing that for a month because i i want to get up to speed and i want to hit the ground running um, and then I'm going to set myself some boundaries in terms of my own well-being and, and so on. But I just need to go up to speed because I know what I'm like. I just want to to go at it, and I'm passionate. So if you're obsessive, yeah. And I'm gonna. And do you know what? It's not about me not being obsessive because it is almost like a superpower for me. So it's letting myself do it to the point that then I set myself rules and go, yeah, okay. Um, because actually, I can't just stop it because it is why I thrive in certain environments. But um, yeah, it's really exciting. They're a fantastic, fantastic people. Um, it's fast paced. I can make a lot of change, which means I can impact a lot of people. And they give me the afternoons off a couple of days a week to go and coach. Like That was huge. So they value me as a person. Before I even turned up, they're valuing what I value and allowing me to be me. And that was huge. Like what? An, there aren't many places that will let you do that. Yeah, no. And, and I love how you spoke. I mean... I know you, you referenced it earlier, but often our super strengths become our take cares when overused. Um, I would be resonating a lot with what you're describing there around trying to create some boundaries. Um, and then also love your language around like It's just managing the noise. And I was, I was curious actually, like, and then also, sorry, I mean, just to pick up on like, it's not so well-being's like got different dimensions, hasn't it? So it's, financial it's as you said physical it's mental it's so there's different aspects to to it but I was curious like what's helped you manage noise so I'm really interested in like is it like strategies is it actually you know doing the, are there activities that you know help you um I'm you know I'm really I'm curious about that and, and I guess how did you then discover that was that yeah I'm, I'm curious yeah, I've done a lot of work, obviously, with psychiatrists, and then I got counselling um, near the end of my career, and, and lots of reflection, self-reflection, lots of learning. Um, so for me, it's about mindset. So there's lots of things. I, I got myself a dog when I moved back to UK from Florida, because I needed a responsibility. Her name is Buddy, because I got her to be a buddy, because I was lonely, because I, I trained two hours a day, and then I'd be on my own all the time. So it gave me a responsibility, got me out of the house, got me out in nature, all those things, brilliant great but for me the mindset changes was were, were everything so how did I measure myself so how did I measure success how did I measure myself I used to measure it on results as I said if I didn't win the race with a world record guess what I'm a failure if I'm not Olympic champion yet I'm a failure until I'm Olympic champion so then I changed my mindset to measuring myself on effort so understanding I was a human being, some days I will not have 100% of the tank because I'll have these stresses that we talk about, this noise, or I might, whatever it might be. You've not slept well, you've not eaten well, whatever. So I've only got 60% of the tank. So what am I going to measure myself on now? I'm going to measure, have I given 100% of that 60? Have I given all that I could on that day? If the answer is yes, I'm cool with that. And I learned that from working with some of the best athletes in the world, like world record holders that when I was out in Florida, when I was training with them, they were average some days. I used to be like, how are you a world record holder? And then when they, the next day they'd turn up and I'd be like, oh, that's why you're a world record holder. And it's just because they turned up, they gave all of it, they measured themselves on effort, did I give it all? And they ended up being really consistent. 
Whereas, as I said, when I put that expectation and pressure on myself when I was young, I became inconsistent because I might have had 60% in the tank, but I was burning through that and being like, no, 100, 101, it has to be even better than my 100, and it has to be better than better every day. I always think it's really dangerous to be like, I need you to be better than you were yesterday. Why? I just need you to be consistent and to try. That's all I need. But we don't like the word try because it sounds like a failure when actually that's all we can do. Um, so that was a huge measure. And I do that in my life as well as on in, in sport. A mm. uh, few other things. Yeah, how often? Yeah. So how would you would you reflect daily on that? Would you be? So this is something just trying to connect up a couple of dots. So Steve Black, who is like one of Fletcher's biggest mentors, he would have three or four questions that he would just answer at the end of every day. You know, was I, you know, did I live my values? Did I, you know, was I the best I could be today, you know, towards other people? whatever it might be, would just reflect on those. And I'm just curious. So every day, would that be something you would intentionally go, actually, did I, you know, did I try as hard as I could today? I did. I think I, I did that to begin with in terms of actually yeah. asking, but I just know. We all know. It's the same way. If someone doesn't do something well, you don't need to tell them. They already know. <laughs> the worst thing, like that annoys me the most when someone's like, ah, oh, that you were shit. Yeah, I know. Well done. Thank you. That's not helped me at all. Tell me why. Tell me how I can fix it. So for me, it's I know that I know if I haven't, um, I've got enough self-awareness now that I, I can and I'll, I'll figure it out whilst I'm doing it. And really, is that what what you've got? Are you sure? I'm I'm more than happy to be harsh on myself if I'm not staying true to my values or not giving the 100 percent that I've demanded in terms of that effort um i'll just be incredibly kind to myself now instead if if i have so if it's not a world record that's fine because guess what i tried i never tried to not run a world record that's the thing at no point in my life did i go i'm gonna try to not be fast today i'm gonna try to not be successful so that's why i'm a lot kinder to myself because it's never through a lack of trying you mentioned self-awareness again then and something mm. you mentioned at the start like I'm guessing, and I would be the same with coaches, like it's, it's probably the root of everything. And I guess like I'm curious from a, you know, your, your point of view in, in your new role, like how are, you, how are you helping people with that? What does that look like? For me, I, I ask a lot of questions. I think the two things that I do in coaching, I do in mentoring, I try and do the rest of my, my time is you give people space to talk. That's the most important thing. Just give them space, which I'm not always good at. So I'm a fixer, right? So if I hear a problem, I'm like, right, let's do this, 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 and this. And I've had to learn to take a step back and go, they don't need fixing straight away. Not everyone needs fixing. Someone, some people just want to talk. So give people space to talk because most of the time they'll figure it out themselves in that space, which is amazing because that's what I want from my athletes when they stand on the start line. I can't hold their hand or whisper in their ear whilst they're running. So I need them to develop that self-awareness. Um, so my guys, like once once they're up and running, they need to be able to set themselves their own warm-up. They need to be able to turn up and do things. Like I am not their babysitter and I do not want to be because I don't enjoy it and on a start line, I'm not there. And then the second part around it is asking questions. My One of my athletes, my main athlete, and she won the World Relay Championships at the weekend with Italy. So she's a world champion. I've co technically coached a world champion at 29. Like, how cool is that? I'm more obviously more happy for her because they weren't expected to win. She was crying after. What an amazing thing. And, and she works hard. But 
she gets really frustrated. We're the same age. I used to train with her in Florida. Yeah, I coach her. And, um, and she gets really frustrated because she's always been dictated to. And after every single run, I'm like, tell me, tell me about it. How did that feel? What was that like for you? And she'll get rid. Well, you know, you tell me. And I'm like, it doesn't matter whether I know. It's about whether you know. Um, if you need help getting there, I'll guide you to that answer. Um, but I'll also learn a lot about that person when I'm asking questions, because how I've always said it is, and I'm not the expert. I don't believe in the expert thing. I'm not the expert in 100, 200, 400, 400 hurdles. I'm more knowledgeable than some. But I will always say to an athlete, look, I'm here to coach you about the event. You're here to coach me about you. Because I don't know how they feel. I can guess. I'll figure it out after working with them for a long time. You pick up their triggers, you pick up traits and so on. But I don't really know how they feel. So I need them to tell me. So that's where the questions come in. And it just makes them think. No point me knowing it. I'm not on the start line anymore. So, yeah. Yeah. And how would you know if you didn't ask the questions? And then I was like some stuff that resonate again with me. And I'm probably reflecting and going, I could be better at giving people space. And then also, like, there is no benefit to your players not being able to warm themselves up. Run. I mean, there's no benefit to it. It wouldn't take long. So if I turned around to a rugby team and said, how long would it take you to be able to run stuff yourself? It would be a matter of weeks. And there's quite frankly no benefit to preventing that. And often as coaches, we are preventing that. We're getting in the way and... And actually, it's not that good for our well-being because we're spending a lot of time stressing and organising. And Whereas actually, if we just supported them through that process, and of course, they might need some nudges or a bit of advice about the warm-up or, you know, that type of stuff, or the running A's, then, like, then we'd be, we could coach then. We could be, we could notice. We could, like, see what they do. We could probably ask better questions. Um yeah, I think we're I think we're scratching the surface. Would be my view of coaching. Oh, for sure, it's all about people in the end. I don't understand why why we don't understand that more as coaches. Is we are in the people game. I'm not in the sport game. I'm in the people game. I I look after people, and um, they just happen to do sport. I look after people. Yeah, you know, I just happen to be in well being. Right. I just it's people, and people are also what excite me about coaching because they're also the biggest pain in the ass. Um, and that's what I like. I like that they're a variable. I like that it changes. I like that I can't predict some things um, when I'm someone who loves control and things. And actually, people are just incredible. Right, I wrote this fantastic plan. Brilliant. Nope. No, that's not working today. And I actually quite like it. It makes me think. Um, and yeah, I think the one thing I'd have to say, it sounds like I, I know a few bits and I'm doing well, but oh, Jesus, I'm learning constantly. I keep getting things wrong all the time. And one thing I'm particularly bad at is giving feedback too often, probably. So, and it's because my athletes have been dictated to before. So then they'll look at me as if, and then I've given in a few times and been like, oh, I've, I've got to validate my reason for being here. Um, whereas actually I'm going to try and learn to be more quiet. I don't want to say things. Um, I don't want to talk. I want them to talk. I want them to finish a run and go, yeah, it was that, wasn't it? And for me to just go, yeah, yeah, it was. Brilliant. Cool. That's the measure of, of if I'm coaching well, I think, is if I don't talk much. Yeah, they're like the uh, the kids in the cricket nets who look up at mum or dad after they played the shot looking for some kind of visual feedback maybe you should wear like sunglasses so they can't even yeah. tell if they've uh, caught your eye 
Last thing I was interested in. So you almost, I mean, you could have gone to the Olympics for sevens. So there was a, there was a period of time when, you know, the green machine might've been playing for uh, England sevens. What was, uh, what was going on there? I love, as you know, I love rugby. I'm playing, I'm playing at national two this season, which is cool with Canterbury. I absolutely love it. Um, and yeah, there was an opportunity when I took my break to go into sevens and, I just wasn't in the right, but do you know what? Like, I wish I'd had the opportunity now because I'm still really fast and I'm fit and it's great, but I was in such a bad place mentally. I wasn't able to fail. I wasn't able to be vulnerable. And all I needed to do at that point was learn a bucket load, but I actually wasn't mentally in the right place to learn anything because I had this idea of I'm an Olympic, I'm one of the best athletes in the world at what I do. Now I'm going into an environment that was very high pressure because it was the level of these boys are talented and I've been given an opportunity here that maybe I don't, I probably don't deserve. There's a lot of talented athletes who could come in. I need to learn, but I put so much pressure on, I have to be that level. And yeah, I just was very negative on myself and it's an opportunity. It's one thing I'll really regret for a long time because I just, you look back at things now and you think, do you know what, if I just stayed in that environment and, and just stayed for a little bit longer and, and just, took things on the chin, just learn, just dealt with failure better. Uh, who knows? I could have, you look at Carlin Isles doing fantastic. Right, you'll, be, you'll be 32 at the next Olympics after this one. You know, a few good games for Canterbury. To be fair, Rusty, I've been trying to talk to you about this for years <laughs> and you've been ignoring me. So, um, yeah. So, do you know what? I'm a much better player than when I, I went there. This year, particularly, I've been doing plenty of uh, plenty of skills. I'm actually looking forward. And I also weigh more now. It's brilliant now I'm an adult. I, was, <laughs> I, weighed, I weighed about 40 kilograms when I used to run. Now I'm up at 90-something, and I can still run fast. So now I'm like, oh, who Mate, knows? If Rocky's listening, then GB could come calling. Uh, He's I'm got a lot of patience, I'm afraid, Rusty, um, putting up with me, so... Nice. Uh, mate, I've got a few kind of one-liners and they're just, I'm curious, like, uh, favourite song? Because I'm assuming, like, you listen to music quite a lot. No. Don't I you? never listen to it when I warmed no, up. Headphones in or anything. Never. So I used to, I like people, right? So the way I got rid of my nerves and my anxiety is I tried, I wanted to talk to people. So I couldn't do that. If I put the headphones in, I'm in my own head and I don't want to be there. Not at the time. I could do, deal with it now, but not when I was younger. So, yeah, I, very can't, I can't exercise without music. Really? Yeah, I need it because, I mean, I'm, you know, I'm probably like, yeah, I don't know, so, but like 46, I spent years of my life like running around doing exercise. It was, and now I'm over it. Like I want to probably want to eat more chocolate than do exercise. Quite <laughs> Our favourite movie? What's your favourite movie? Um, the it's in French, it's something about the Untouchables or something. Or in, um, it's around. It's my favourite, and I don't know what it's called. That's the best part. Um, about a, a quadriplegic, um, and it's a French film, and it's just brilliant. Like genuinely, I remember going to a cinema, one of the little old cinemas in Bath. A friend said, "Come with me," and I was like, "French film subtitles? No, thank you." And then, yeah, I watched it and was just like. This is the best thing I've ever seen. Makes you laugh, cry, everything. So if you haven't seen it. Intouchable or Intouchables in English. I just Googled it. Wonderful accent there, Rusty. Merci bien, merci bien. 
Um, what was the best? I mean, so far, what's been, if I was to go, what's been your best moment in athletics, either as, a, as an athlete or as a coach? Like, what's the moment that comes to your mind now? I came fourth at the Commonwealth Games. I missed a medal by two hundredths of a second. And it's the only race I've ever celebrated. And I was so incredibly proud of myself. And yet I was also seven hundredths of a silver. Um, I coached myself. It was my last major championships, 2018. I invested everything emotionally, physically. I was in phenomenal shape and I ran the best race of my life. It just happened that three people ran a bit better and I can't do anything. But, but I, the fact that I had that awareness on the track, I remember just looking up being like, I think I got bronze there. And I looked up at the, the scoreboard and it came up fourth. And I just went, I smiled. I was genuinely so happy. Like, what a journey. The last Commonwealth Games, I was on antidepressants, no longer running. And now at this one, I've just coached myself, which no professional athlete does come forth. And the people I beat an Olympic, the reigning Olympic champion, beat a world champion, only lost to like the best athletes in the world. The only people that could have beaten me, essentially, in terms of ability. Um, and yeah, I just, un I understood a lot at that point. And it showed how far I'd come because I, I controlled the controllables. I focused on myself. I stayed in the present. I was just, yeah, it was just a big part of my journey. Mate, I'm going to have to finish on that one. I had a couple more, but that's <laughs> like, that's given me joy. You, you, you did the best you possibly could on that day. Oh, And it yeah, wasn't definitely. quite good enough to beat some other people who'd, you know. But they just did the best they could on that day and it just yeah. happened to be a bit better. I can't do anything about them. I can only do something about me and I did all I could. Jack Green, we finally did it. It's been Fine. a pleasure. Um, mate, well done. I'm loving, like, I'm definitely going to keep an eye out on the stuff you're doing and the impact you're having. And, mate, well done. I think it's class. And teach me to pass off my left hand. Is that what's next? Are you, me I'm pass. assuming you're right-handed, are you? Yeah, it's getting better, I'll have to say. But, yeah. Might need your help on that. Yeah, mate, it's fine. Just stand on the right hand side of the pitch. <laughs> <laughs> you don't have to worry. Just problem, move problem. I'm assuming you're playing on the right wing for uh, for the mighty Canterbury. Yeah, yeah, you guessed it already. Yeah, yeah. you should probably spend a bit of time at centre as well, would be my view. Outside centre, a bit of full back, get some space, have a run. Yeah, we'll see. Yeah. But like, yeah, I might need to pick your brains on that. Mate, I'm looking forward to watching that as well. I'm expecting you'd be top of the try scorer charts. Don't pressure. We just talked about pressure, <laughs> if that's what you want to do, mate. Look, thanks so much. Uh, have a great evening, and we'll catch up soon. Yeah. No, nice one, brilliant.